Do you want to go deeper in your faith even while you're on the go? No matter how busy the season you're in, Access More has a library of faith-based podcasts to help you grow spiritually. With podcasts from Christian thought leaders such as Christine Kane, Lisa Harper, Taryn Wells, and Bob Goff, you can hear podcasts on religion, culture, family, entertainment, and so much more. Access More gives you a safe space to find inspiring conversations about faith. Start listening today at accessmore.com. Welcome to Your Best Writing Life, an extension of the Blue Ridge Mountains Christian Writers Conference held in the beautiful Blue Ridge Mountains of North Carolina. I'm your host, Linda Goldfarb. Each week, I bring you tips and strategies from experts in the writing and publishing industry to help you excel in your craft. And I am so very glad that you are listening in. During this episode, you'll learn about crafting visual images to better engage readers. This is going to be a little different than what you're thinking about. My industry expert is award-winning writer, speaker, and teacher, Zena Del Lowe. And Zena has worked professionally in the entertainment industry for over 20 years as a writer, producer, director, actress, and story consultant. Zena also teaches advanced classes on writing all over the country. In addition to her work as a filmmaker, she launched the Storyteller's Mission with Zena Del Lowe, a podcast designed to serve the whole artist, not just focus on the craft. I've included more about Zena in our show notes. Be sure to check those out today and connect with her as you are led. Zena, welcome to your best writing life. Well, thank you so much, Linda. I'm happy to be here. It's good to have you, and I can't wait to dive into the content that we have today. We are looking at crafting visual images to better engage readers. And we, we've all heard this, right, as storytellers. We've heard the saying, show, don't tell. But from what I'm discovering with you, that's not what we're going to be looking at today. You really do have a deeper concept you want to share with us as far as creating visual images. Why don't we dive into that? What is that comparative between show, don't tell and the visual imaging that you're wanting us to really gravitate to? That's a great question, Linda. Thank you. So obviously, we all want to show, don't tell, whether you're a screenwriter or a novelist. I work with both, by the way. So these concepts really do spill over to both types of mediums. But to me, and this is just me putting it in a way that makes sense to me, to me, when I think show, don't tell, I think of using descriptive language to try to create a picture in the reader's head. And that's good. We, are, we want to do that. We should all be striving to do that. But when I think about visual images, it's a little different. It goes deeper. Visual images are things that you're actually putting into the story, infusing into the story that actually create a deeper level of meaning in the story so that you can convey deep, deep things to your reader. It's a true connection without it being word heavy. So the idea is, of course, a picture is worth a thousand words. So it's not so much about descriptive language or powerful word choices as much as it is about choosing certain images that have a power to communicate something on a deep gut felt level that will ultimately impact the audience in their heart. And that is what we want. We want to be able to invite our reader, our listener, our viewer on an adventure where they are experiencing at heart level what we really want them to get. Yes. So how, where do we start with that? What should we consider first, maybe? Okay, good. I actually have lectures that I've given on visual images. And if anybody's ever taken at Blue Ridge or somewhere else, one of my classes, they probably sat in on my visual image lecture that I give. But I don't want to talk about that so much as just the principles in general mm. so that people can actually start getting this concept. So I'll give an example of what I mean. 
there was a gal who came to me about wanting to write a particular story. She was a novelist and she was having a hard time. And I had, she had sat in on my visual image class, but what she was looking for, one of the things I talked about in that is that you can actually take a prop, for example, and put meaning into that prop so that as you use it over the course of the story, it communicates a deeper level of meaning to the audience. For example, she already had a prop in her story of the character who had her grandmother's hair combs. She loved her grandmother's hair combs, was the most prized possession that this gal had in the, the character in the novel. And yet this gal was on the run. She had done something horrible. The authorities were after her. She had accidentally killed her child. So she actually had a lot of shame and was homeless and all these things, but she kept these combs. So the story is actually about this gal's redemption. And as part of her redemptive process, she comes to see her value, that she still has worth, that God still loves her. And she ultimately then turns herself in at the end, which is her ultimate owning up to her crimes, if you will. But the comb became the symbolic thing that we were able to track that internal emotional journey, which communicated so much more than if the author had just tried to say these things to the audience. So at one point, the character actually, once she encounters God, she actually baptizes herself and washes her hair for the first time. And when she's done, she actually puts that comb in her hair. Well, that's a symbolic communication. I'm worthy. I'm actually worthy of my most prized possession. I never wore it before. I just carried it with me because I wasn't worthy and I wasn't clean. But now I see that I am. And then at the end, when she's walking up the steps to the courthouse and everybody's jeering at her and screaming because, you know, baby killer, all these things, she's got her chin lifted high because she knows who she is in God now. But there's one gal from the crowd who steps out and grabs her hair and rips out that hair comb that goes, you know, clacking along the sidewalk. And first our character scrambles trying to get it and trying to find it bending down on her knees and she finally finds it. But then when she stands up, she turns back to the woman who's attacked her and she gives her the hair combs. Mm -hmm. And I love that because it just says so much that the, what it says to the audience is so powerful about how, how much she's changed on the inside. She doesn't even need the worldly material items anymore, those objects of value, because she knows who she is in God. And in fact, she's able to take this woman who has hated her and struck out at her and offered this gift to her. I mean, how much does that speak to the audience? That is one aspect, just a one teeny, teeny, tiny bit of what I'm talking about, about visual images. And it's more than just show, don't tell descriptive language. That is a powerful use of image to convey a deeper level of meaning. So when we utilize this deeper level concept, I can see how it worked beautifully with the comb because as you said, it became like a thread, a tracking method, so to speak, of the theme or the redemption or the worthiness going throughout the storyline. And that's beautiful. Is there another essence of creating this visual image that you want us to connect with? Sure. There's all sorts. You know, here's the thing about it that I love. Uh, in my lecture, I talk about seven levels of visual images. In fact, there's a free download for your listeners. If they're interested in that, they can see what I talk about in the primary lecture just to kind of get their wheels spinning and their mind going. Right. However, um, that's just getting started. You know, that, that's not the end of it. That's just to open our minds on this journey. We're kind of like painters who have a palette of hundreds of colors, but we're only using one or two, and that's literal words. And so one of the things that I, I want people to get used to is, and I'm even sort of changing the language to help people understand this, visual cues, 
visual cues. I like that. You know, if you go to a play, you you know that there's cues. Oh, uh, we need the lighting cue. Oh, that's the sound cue. You know, things like that. And then that prompts the story forward and new things to happen. And the play is exciting because it's unfolding in front of us. But I think as writers, we should get better about giving our audience visual cues that let them know that stuff is happening beneath the surface. For example, let's say I've got two characters at school, they're enemies, you know, they're, um, I always kind of go back to the high school drama stuff. It's kind of fun. Uh, <laughs> they, you know, one of them's a nerd. The other one is the big cool jock, but the story is ultimately going to be about these two unlikely people becoming friends. And then they change the entire dynamic of the way the school is supposed to be or something to that effect. Well, let's say we start out where they're assigned to the same table at maybe, a, you know, in, science or something. I don't know. But they're assigned to the same group and our little nerd kid reaches for something and the big jock bully slaps his hand and he takes it instead. Well, that's a visual cue that communicates to the audience that he does not like him. He is not accepted. He's not an equal. I'm the boss and you will do what I say. But then as the story unfolds, let's say we see them back in that little science thing. And this time they know they need that thing in the middle. And now the little nerd kid looks at the jock to get his permission. And now, you know, the jock nods and then he's able to take it. All right. That's a visual cue that says there's some mutual respect going on. The kid's not being rash. He's not taking it without, you know, making sure they're on the same page, but the jock gives him permission. Okay. So now let's say we're the third time we're at that table. And now the jock, even before the kid even reaches for that thing, the jock just grabs it and hands it to him as he keeps talking to everybody else. Like there's no permission. It's just, he's just handing it to him. Well, that just shows the evolution of their character relationship. And how much does that communicate without us having to describe that in words? I really like the term evolution. It is the evolution of that relationship. And I was tracking with you the whole time. And I could see <laughs> step one, step two, step three in that level of uh, relational intimacy between the two. We have the negative dynamics. We have the coming together a little bit. Still, there's a hierarchy there. And then, no, I get you. I know what you need. And I'm going to show by handing that off. I like that. So when we when we want to incorporate these visual cues into our writing, Zena, do we start off with as we're going through a chapter or as we're mind mapping or using sticky notes? Do we go, okay, what kind of visual cue do I want to use in this chapter? How do we mm. do that? Is there a process to that? It? Yeah. Okay. That's an excellent question. Uh, the million dollar question, really. How million do we do dollar. it? All right. <laughs> if everybody could do it, then everybody would do it. <laughs> so here's, here's my approach. Um, I started out actually as an actor. And so I'm always approaching story through character. Character is always my entrance. But I also think that's where character, that's where story should be entered through character because a story unfolds as a result of the character. So really the first place to start isn't actually with visual images. The first place to start is character and figuring out what they want. What, what are they after? What is their motivation? What are they pursuing in that scene? And also, because they're pursuing something, there always has to be an activity. See, a lot of my visual images end up coming out of the activity that they're doing in the scene. So, for example, in my short film that I did, Hard Shell, it, which was about two sisters who end up cutting each other out of each other's lives. And I wanted to explore what has to happen for two people that absolutely adore each other to completely cut each other out of their lives because it, I see it happening all the time. And so I wanted to explore that. Well, towards the end of the film, 
I have a scene where one of the sisters goes to the younger sister and tries to make amends. You know, they've had this terrible fight and she's there to try to make amends. And the little sister is ignoring her. She's folding laundry in this very, um, you know, rigid fashion. She's flicking the laundry and she's ignoring the older sister. And then as the older sister then is trying to spill out her heart, she's like, I'm sorry, I didn't mean it. Yes, you did. And finally, the older sister grabs the piece of clothing that the younger sister's folding to force the younger sister to look at her. And now the younger sister doesn't say anything. She just tries to tug it back. Next thing you know, the two sisters are having a silent, rageful tug of war over this piece of clothing until finally the little sister smacks the big sister, who then turns around and smacks the little sister even harder. She falls. The little sister comes, excuse me, the big sister comes away with the item of clothing, but she's lost her little sister forever. So then when she hands the item back, they both know the relationship. It ended at that moment. She came to apologize and instead it's ruined forever and she leaves. Now, here's the thing. That visual image communicates that. I don't have to say that anywhere in the story. The relationship is over. They'll never restore it. I, I don't have to say that. I've shown it, but I've shown it through a visual cue because of that particular prop. And I found that prop because of what it did to help the characters pursue their goals. See, the, the little sister was trying to ignore the big sister and was being hard and was doing her thing. And you know how we do that. We just, her activity and I'm too good for you, blah, blah, blah. And that's what allowed the thing to escalate to the point that it ended up severing their relationship. Now, I will also add, I didn't stop there. To add another level of visual cue to really communicate that point, I showed the big sister leaving the house, no expression on her face, nothing. She just looks totally stoic. And then as soon as she gets to her car, she just bends over and vomits. Well, that's another visual cue that tells the audience, ah, ah, it's just so serious, right? It's so permanent, so permanent that it gives the big sister a visceral physical reaction. She never says anything about it. We just see it. So all that to say, that's where I think we enter it is we have to start each scene instead of thinking about the visual images, think about what are, what are my characters doing and then get good at using what they're doing as visual images as the scene unfolds. And we can do this without it being a screenplay. We can Ooh. do this in our writing, capturing that concept of show, don't tell, but really going to the heart of the individual. I'm, I'm, what I'm hearing from you is make that visual cue personal. It has to be personal. I'm in my mind. Okay. It could be someone who's a baker, so they could very easily be kneading dough and when the other person walks in, it's something to do with that baking process, something to do with the dough. I, there's a lot of things in my mind that immediately can go to different characters in stories that I'm considering. And, oh, for them, it would be this. For them, it would be this. So we utilize yes. that in the moment because this is different from the first one. The first one was that image uh, that goes throughout the course of the storyline. This is a momentary visual cue that we give our readers, our listeners, and in that essence, it's still a personal thing because that's what ties me to, that's what makes it more emotional provoking, I guess. Yes. Yes. Emotionally provocative. Okay. And you know what? You, you've spawned something. I'm, I'm, I'm. I'm not sure. I haven't totally thought through this, but what you just said really triggers this in my mind. 
I'm wondering if what we're talking about here is the visual images that end up playing its role in the entire story really have to do with the character's arc, the arc of the story, or the theme of the story, the visual image of the theme, whereas the stuff in the individual scenes is, they're just moments on that journey, the, the personal moments, but they can also be, you know, they can communicate something just in that moment necessarily. So right. um, let's see if I can explain. So for example, I'm reading a book right now. Uh, I love it. In fact, I love it so much I hate it because I've been staying up until like three or four in the morning uh, reading. I can't put it down. So it's the Red Rising series. And in the series, it's just wonderful. But in the series, there it's about how society in the future has been separated into these different classes. Uh, we've really evolved, and yet we're really divided. And the golds lead everybody, and you know, got these different creatures or different humans that are relegated to these different colors. But at one point, one of the characters has a ring, and she's an enemy of our hero. But she has this ring that she slips out of her pocket and she puts it on her finger. And when he looks at it, he sees, oh, it's the ring from when they were students together um, and they both got these wolf head rings. And what he realizes is that is her signal to him that she's actually on his side in that moment. And so that's a visual cue that really speaks volumes. And as soon as he sees it, she slides it off again into her pocket before the other people that are there see that. So it was a visual cue. And that that doesn't need to, that doesn't have to do with the overall arc in terms of, you know, but you could do that. Let's just say that that ring then becomes the symbol of a broken relationship being healed. So maybe she carries it around in her pocket and in that moment, she slips, she brings it out of her pocket. Maybe they're private. There's no other people around, but she's kind of twirling around and then she slips it back in. So she's considering the relationship. I mean, you could use that as a visual image to represent their relationship. Then at the end of your novel, you could show the ring on somebody's finger and then you have the hero come in and he kisses her on the cheek and they walk on their way. And now we see the relationship has been healed. So you could use that image to represent a more arc-oriented storyline. Or you can use it just in that moment, just in that scene, in a powerful way that communicates far more than just words. Yeah, that's perfect. Because we want that. We like to have the unexpected yet not completely, you know, it's not like the ring appeared and had never, ever been part of it before. Right. But right. I mean, it has to, to have been set up. Yeah. yeah it had to have been set up, but to utilize it for something that was not the original intent. I really like that. I really like that because I like catching that when I'm reading or watching a, a movie, those trigger me. I'll go, wait Isn't a minute. Isn't that true? Yes. yes. And that's and that's what we were talking about before you and I is how this actually is the way you want to get your readers excited about the material. You know, really, the whole goal about writing a novel, the whole the necessary component is that you capture your audience, your readers. They have to be emotionally engaged. And guess what? There is so much competition out there. There are so many stories they could read that they want to know that you are worth their emotional investment because Ooh, like it costs that. something for us to invest emotionally into a story. It costs something. It hurts our heart when characters die. It hurts us, right? But we have to then be emotionally invested. And this is how you do it. See, when you don't spoon feed characters things, but you give them these gems, so they're tracking. They know you've set up the power of that ring, the importance of that ring. And now you see these things happen and they get excited because they're interpreting it. You have invited them into the process. It's no longer a solo voyeuristic endeavor. It is the two of you. You're in the story together and the reader is every bit as engaged and participatory in this journey. Yes. So good. I really, really like that. 
And it brings to my mind as well that we can at times in the show and show don't tell promise, so to speak, be way too cliche. We Mm. can do, okay, well, yeah, I didn't see that coming. Not said no one, right? So how can we keep these Mm. visual images fresh? You know, what, what, what do we do for that? So that we don't have that. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Let's do it. Okay. So for example, I think what has started to happen is as, as people are trying to show, don't tell, they're using really cliched phrases or really they are images, but they're cliched images to try to communicate things. For example, if I read one more thing about how some character chewed her bottom lip, I swear I'm going to rip up the book because that is just so overused, right? It's so overused. And now I understand what that writer is trying to convey is that the character is nervous. Um, And so she chews her bottom lip. But first of all, how many people actually chew their bottom lip? Come on. And plus, most of us are wearing a mask in real life so that if we are that nervous, we're not actually chewing our bottom lip, even if we want to. We have different ticks that we've learned to hide from people. So <clears throat> those sorts of things are the cliche, I think. They're, they're maybe showing and not telling, but they're telling a cliche, which then isn't fresh. So my approach to that would be, first of all, throw all that stuff out. Don't, don't try to just describe character behavior in the moment, but rather look for things that are bigger, you know, props, rituals that you can use. Um, The environment, look at the environment, look at where they are. That is so huge. So for example, I had one of my students writing a little story about being in a relationship with a narcissist. And it was a little short story about being in a relationship with a narcissist. And so this character starts out in, and this might sound cliche, but the way she wrote it didn't feel cliche, even though how I'm communicating it probably does. But what she did is she started it where the character was um, on the edge of a a little beautiful little farm uh, field, and she was picking this beautiful vase of flowers and it was gorgeous because everything was blooming and right. It was just gorgeous. It was too good to be true. And she puts it all together, which is what the relationship with the narcissist feels like at first, that love bombing. Mm -hmm. So then you have, um, and then she, he comes and she's, you know, Oh, those flowers are so beautiful. And she's in this pretty little dress and he sweeps her off her feet and they go on to dinner. Um, okay, so now you cut to later in the story, and um, and he's he does that thing, you know, that that thing that narcissists do, where they they basically cause you to question your own reality. They attack you. They have to hurt you. They have to do these things. And she's so confused about what's happening, what's happening. And so now she goes back to um, the field. And she notices that there's like these uh, flies buzzing around on the flowers. There's these, you know, there's these bugs. There's like an invasion of all these bugs. So she's trying to swap them, trying to protect the flowers, trying to keep the flowers fresh um, from these bugs that want to eat it and destroy it. Then you cut to later in the story when um, it it really escalates. And now he's physically abusive too. And, and there's a storm raging outside. And so she goes um, to the field to, you know, kind of escape this abuse. And she just sees the, the rain is pounding these flowers and these flowers and are now like stuck in the mud and they're drenched and they're soaked. They're still alive, but they are, they are just taking a beating. And then the final image she uses is um, when she finally, when the character finally leaves um, the narcissist, she goes to the field and she stands on the edge of it. And the flowers have recovered. They're, they're, they're not as beautiful, as, certainly as they were at the beginning. They're still droopy, they're, but they're alive. And she takes a match and lights the whole thing on fire. 
So that is a beautiful use of visual images that were in story form. That could have been used in a screenplay or a novel um, as a representation. The key would be, and this would be the hard part, the key would be, and I'm not sure she fully pulled this off, that's what we were working on, but how do you do that with it not being on the nose? So one of the things I was trying to tell her was the storyline with the flowers needs to have its own reason. So yes, what, ha- what needed to happen is, for example, the maybe, maybe she is a flower salesperson <laughs> or something. You know, maybe she owns a flower store. And so really this is her business um, that she is. And so, yes, she's doing all those things and she's, you know, trying to spray against bugs and all these things. Um, but she's doing that for a purpose. It's so that it's not so obvious that it's meant to represent the relationship with her and the narcissist. Right. And I can see, I can see the meaning behind that. I was thinking either she was a florist or maybe it was her family's field and it's something that she remembers from her mother and that, you know, this is, and that would be the reason that she would go and protect it. If it was just a field of flowers, don't know that I'd be going out there trying to, you know, protect it against, uh, massive bugs or insects, but it had to have a personal connection outside of the connection with the narcissist. And that then would have a deeper meaning and show, truly show us how God weaves everything together. And and he does. I actually love what you just said. The the Mm. idea of, you know, what if it's a family field like her mother or something like that? Because the truth is, people that end up with in relationships with narcissists generally have some trauma from their past. Right. Or else they wouldn't end up in these relationships with narcissists. They don't really know what normal is. And I, I I'm, this is not a judgment. This is, I'm, you know, speaking from experience here. Um, and so in that case, the alternative storyline might be, you know, a little bit of naivete on her part to try to, recreate the field that her mother loved as a connection to her past, but forgetting the trauma or the, the abuse of her childhood that really formed who she was. And so it all comes together at, you know, at the same time where she realizes too, that it was, she's debilitated because of her family of origin. And that's how she ended up in this way. And so now the burning of the field becomes even more powerful. It's not just the burning of the relationship because it's burning it all down. That's right. It does not define me. That's right. And yes, I could see that working. Well, great. We just created another storyline for somebody. Come on, people. You can do this. <laughs> no, that, that is so good. Zena, you have shared a lot of ways that we can utilize creating visual images to help our readers get deeper into our story. And I really Mm -hmm. like what you have shared. The concept of foreshadowing is there as well for many images that we use. Is there any other times in a story you would say, hey, make sure to take advantage of or find ways to use visual images? Yes, that's actually a really good question. Um, the best way I know how to explain these things is to give examples. So I'm speaking of visual images, right? So the truth is people might not remember the words that I'm saying today, but they'll probably remember these stories. They'll probably remember the visual images that I gave in the stories. And that's the thing that's the takeaway. That's why visual images are so powerful. And that's why I'm giving a lot of those as I talk about this, because those are what stay with us. We remember them. So to that end, one of the things I would encourage writers is to not limit themselves just to what is a quote, visual image in terms of the eye, but in terms of all our senses. You know, that's the thing. I'm using it in the sense of it, it engages all our senses and yet still communicates that deeper level of meaning. So for example, auditory cues are really, really powerful. 
And there's a number of examples, but I'm going to give an example from my very first paid screenwriting gig. It was for a small little company. It was a little after school special, 30 minute after school special, but it was trying to exemplify or give a, um, the story of somebody who didn't sort of deserve to be loved. It was a very uh, biblically themed story. You know, somebody who felt like they didn't deserve their love. So what I did was I pitched to them the idea of this boy who has an alcoholic father and he's got all this anger and he just hates his dad. And as a result, he gets into all these fights at school, but he's really a bright kid and he has the potential. And so one particular teacher takes him under his wing and starts trying to teach him to control that anger, to, to change his perspective, to, you know, be able to forgive his dad, that sort of thing. So, you know, all that probably sounds kind of cliche. And this, again, was in 2001, so it was my first time. But what I did and what I'm really proud of in that story is that I wanted to show, I wanted to have cues that would represent the internal anger. If anybody has ever been filled with rage or unforgiveness or bitterness and resentment, and doesn't know what to do with it. It is an always present, constant source. It's always there. And it's always just buzzing. And, and you feel it viscerally as a person, as a human being. It's always in your body. So I wanted to try to represent that to really demonstrate the depths of this kid's rage. And then hopefully allow that to be the thing that he's able to be redeemed from. So what I did was there's a number of visual images or visual cues that I, I put into this story to help try to communicate that without words. And one of them was the constant buzzing of all the engineered devices. For example, when he's after a fight and he's sitting outside the principal's office, he's sitting next to a drinking fountain and you hear that low hum of the fountain which gets louder as he sits there waiting to be called in and probably expelled, which there goes his chances of college. Um, so it gets louder and louder. And then he goes home from that meeting and he storms through the house, slamming the doors, goes straight to his room, slams the door. His room is this dark cave and he goes to his desk and he flips on his little desk light, which is one of those little fluorescent lights that then has this high pitched, you know, little sound. And he's like, he looks at these college pamphlets because he thinks he's ruined his chance to go. And that was his one chance of escape. So he's mad. And so the light then, the light on that, both the color, but also the buzzing sound in the background becomes the cue of his internal anger. Then there's a scene later on where he does have this terrible um, fight with his dad. And in that scene, he ends up, beaten his dad up like he actually is abusive towards his dad and then he and then he realizes what he's done and he runs out of the house and he's just he's angry he just doesn't know where to go and he, he stops running finally on the street light and he's so angry and he's just like ah and then right then like the light the street light and you know is like crackling above him and then it pops and goes out and you know punches him into darkness um so those were audio clues that I was using to try to demonstrate his internal rage. But then also at the same time, I was utilizing other types of images to show the internal emotional arc of his character. So this teacher that takes him under the wing likes tea and is, is offers him tea. I and mean, this is, a, I mean, come on, a, a 16 year old kid, he doesn't want to drink tea. But this guy is like, no, I you know, have some tea. It'll do you good, you know. And so he drinks the tea. And, and then as the kid is, is growing under the tutelage of this teacher, we see him under a tree reading one of the books the teacher's given him, and he's drinking tea. And I didn't expect it, but when we screened the film, people laughed. They enjoyed it so much to see that visual cue said so much about he likes it. You know, he's growing. He even is, he's by himself now and he's drinking the darn tea. Then another visual cue auditory. So that's just another kind of cue. But another one that I used then absolutely was a cue that references biblical meaning, which is 
after that fight with his dad, you know, he ends up getting arrested. He himself has a lot of wounds, but this teacher comes and bails him out of jail and the teacher takes him back to the house. And so now the kid is just, he's just dejected. He feels like he's ruined everything. He lost it and he's ruined it. And yet this teacher, Mr. Hopkins is right there. He, he still bailed him out of jail. And in fact, he's what Mr. Hopkins is treating his wounds. He's washing his wounds. And this kid can't understand it. And he starts sobbing. Like, I, I, I've ruined it. Why are you, why are you still doing it? I've ruined everything. But that's the point is that we can't ruin God's love. It's so deep. No matter what we do, when we repent, he he is there. His love is there. And Mr. Hopkins becomes the representative of God to this boy, loving him in the midst of his unlovability and showing grace in the midst of what he, that boy thinks is hopelessness. And so that right there conveys so much more than anything Hopkins could say. A speech would not be nearly as powerful as this man treating the boy's wounds, even though the boy has ruined everything. And then to add to that, when Hopkins wakes up in the morning and goes to check on him, the boy isn't there. And then we cut to, he's coming into the room with his father with, who's in bed, at, you know, with, uh, you know, he's just beat to shreds. And when the father sees him, he, he cowers, he actually scoots away, he's terrified. But the son brings in a basin with a washcloth and starts washing his father's wounds. And that's the end. So, I mean, there's so many layers of visual images there, all conveying different parts of the story. All found, discovered along the way because of the environment, because of the setting, because of who these characters are. Um, some of them turn into bigger things than I even meant for them to be. Like I discovered during the screening when people laughed, I mean, they were delighted by that moment. I had no idea that that would happen. I had only used it to show what I meant to show, which is that he was learning from, you know, he was getting, he was into it. And, uh, but people were delighted. But all of that came together to tell, even for my very first project, a very delightful little story. The problem was, ironically, the filmmaker, I didn't get to direct it or anything. I was just the writer. He didn't get any of that. <laughs> so, so the final product doesn't have a lot of that in it. But had it, it would have been so much more powerful because of the way it communicated something visually on multiple levels in multiple ways throughout the entire story. And that's what draws the audience in to the journey. It makes them part of it and it makes them enjoy it. And that is the reason why we do what we do. We write to take someone on an adventure, to equip them, some cases and some instances, to entertain, to draw them in so that they can experience what we have put down in words at such a deep level that they can walk away changed. That's right. That they can experience it viscerally. And here's the thing. That doesn't happen when you preach through words. No, no. That does not happen. And so I know that what happens in Christendom, we all have a message. I love the Christian community because we are all so passionate about communicating some of these truths of God. The problem is we're doing it wrong. And I'm here to tell you, nothing, no speech that Hopkins in that story could have given or the boy at the end could have come close to the visual image that I showed through the washing of the wounds. And that's, right. that's why if you have a message, this is the way to do it. This is where, where we need to be going. We yes. need to be thinking about what we want to say, but then finding the images that convey it 
So we don't have to say it. And then that's what, when Maya Angelou talks about it, it slides past the brain and goes down the throat and deep into the heart. I mean, I'm, I know that's not the exact quote, but that's what, that's what we're talking about here. And you'll never be accused of preaching because the that's visual right. image is powerful. It's what is the connector. And it's still saying, in fact, it is the thing that says something. You don't actually want to engage the audience's brain. You want to engage their heart, but you preach and you engage their brain. And usually it makes them check out because nobody wants, it feels like somebody's trying to force you to believe some statement, some doctrinal statements. Right. Right. But so you don't want to engage that. You don't actually want to have speeches and, or have not even speeches, but have the author write it, which is also another kind of speech. When you put it in the form of an image, the audience will weep because it will be truth communicated directly to their soul. Great leave. Great leave. And that is what we want. For God to be able to use us in such a way that as we write, as we speak, as we share, that the audience takes away something they did not have when they arrived. That is what we want. And God will, make, will allow that to happen. He can make it happen beyond the words that we choose to use. So considering creating that visual image that really grabs the heart and takes our listener, our reader, on a journey to the very end. So when the book closes, maybe perhaps they take a deep breath and blow it out yeah. slowly. That makes it beautiful. Can I add one thing here, Linda? Certainly. Can I just say that I'm really good at helping writers do this? So well, and and that is something. Are... <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's something that I want us to talk about. I know that you have. Uh, the website, I've got the website there as well. And you have your podcast, you have a website. These, this is an area that you do um, on an ongoing basis. You have been working That's with right. writers. You have been working in this industry for a long time. And that this is something that you offer them to help them craft beyond the craft uh, when it comes to their book. So yeah, I, we do have that in the show notes for them to be able to get a hold of you. And folks, that's what I, go and peruse Xena's uh, website. Go take a look. Storytellersmission.com. <laughs> there are visual images there that are probably going to draw you in. I'm just going to say that, <laughs> right? I'm just going to say that. And one thing that I would like us to do I like sharing the personal peek behind the curtain with my first time guests. So would you share with us something that we may not read in your bio? What is something about Xena that maybe a lot of people don't know? <laughs> okay. So, uh, well, I am an animal sucker. And I, I mean, I'm a sucker. I'm not just an animal lover. I'm an animal sucker. So what happens to me is I just love them. And so right now where I live in my little house in LA, I have my dog, which most people who know me know about my dog, Lulu. She goes with me everywhere. But in right. addition to Lulu, I take care of four feral cats. I, I've built, yep. I have built for them a little catwalk. I feed them every day. And I have cat trees now that I've put around. I've built little terrain for them so they can run around. They love it, but you know, they won't let me pet them, but they are always here now. So they're protected. Um, so I have four feral cats that I take care of. But in addition to the feral cats, I have a family of skunks that leave, lives under my house. I, I feed the skunks. And the thing is, is that the skunks, you would be surprised. Most people would be like, you have skunks living under your house. Doesn't it stink? No, they don't want to spray where they live. It's actually the best way to avoid being sprayed. Um, <laughs> and they have learned to coexist with the feral cats. And then in addition to that, 
I also have a family of raccoons that live in one of my trees and I take care of them too. In fact, both the skunks and the raccoons know where I feed the cats. So now the raccoons have been climbing the cat trees to get to the cat food and the skunks go up the catwalk to get to the cat food. So um, I feed a lot of animals here. I have more animals here than I ever did in Montana. How ironic is that? I would say absolutely in LA and this is what you have. Bring it. We, <laughs> we take care of God's creatures. It's all, it's all That's a good right. thing. And as I said, folks, we do have information in the show notes about uh, Zena and her. She has a, the storyteller's mission with Zena Del Lowe is her podcast and Correct. it's a, a podcast that does help beyond just the craft. It's it, it, this is dealing with the whole person. And I recommend for you to go take a look at that. And what Thank do you, you have? What do you have for our listeners today? I think you alluded to it a little bit. I did. So what I put together is a, a free download for anybody who's interested. It just is gives you the basics of where to start with visual images. <clears throat> Excuse me. I call it the, you know, the first seven levels of visual images, the first sort of place to start. So it gives, just gives you some ideas, uh, describes those, gives you, gives you some examples so that you can start crafting them for your own story. And that's just beautiful. We thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much, Zena, for being here thank with you, us today. Linda. This has been a pleasure. It was a blast. It was a blast. Good to have you here. Thank you. And folks, I, I thank you as well. I always thank you, friends, for joining us. Please take a moment to share this podcast or share this episode also with another writer or two and give us a star rating, post an episode review, and hit that subscribe button. I greatly appreciate you because what you have to say matters as much as what you have to write. This is Linda Goldfarb, and I do look forward to being here with you next time on your best writing life.